Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Greetings, constant listeners. It's Gen 2, the Rage Adams. Today, in celebration of the 30th anniversary of Pet Cemetery 2, we are unlocking one of our older Patreon exclusive episodes from the Dairy Private Library. It's a Lobstrosities episode that dates back to October 2020 and features a star studded assembly of guests, specifically Megan Navarro of Bloody Disgusting and Brett Arnold of the New Flesh podcast. Our fellow loser, Rachel Reeves, makes one of our earlier appearances on the show too. Together they discuss the 90s appeal of Edward Furlong, Dream Crush, the leading man question mark qualities of Anthony Edwards, also Dream Crush, and why Clancy Brown, third Dream Crush, is the MVP of Mary Lambert's underrated sequel. And if you enjoy an explosive episode like this, you can get even more of them by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash the Barons. There you can find hours and hours of exclusive content we haven't unlocked, from commentaries for your favorite Stephen King films to our in-depth archival series that goes deep into King's uncollected works to our Dark Tower spinoff series. For now, though, enjoy this episode, and I'll be seeing you over long days and pleasant nights. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. I'm your host for today, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman, leading another installment of Lobstrosities, your favorite, your only outlet for scholarly discussions on the countless Stephen King sequels that have piled up over the years. Uh, This time around, we're heading back to Ludlow, Maine to go hiking, play with pups, bike ride on major highways, and have ourselves a plate of mashed potatoes. Yes, we're talking about the one and only Pet Cemetery 2, Mary Lambert's follow-up to her iconic 1989 masterpiece, you guessed it, Pet Cemetery. (laughs) Uh, Well, you might be surprised because uh, this isn't going to be your average lobstrosities. No, 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 no. Spoiler alert, but we actually don't hate this movie, and you're probably going to hear some scorching hot takes up ahead. Um, before we do that, before we start talking about Clancy Brown, before we remark on the heavy grunge influence here and the drama-rama on the soundtrack, I got to introduce these guests. Uh, look, pulling up on his dirt bike all the way from New York City is... Hey, it is me, Brett Arnold from the New Flesh Podcast, returning to the show. It is great to be here. Hello, Michael. Oh, Brett, it's good to hear from you. You know, I think the last time we spoke, um... We were talking about Blockbuster Dollars, Blockbuster King, um, I believe. And maybe before that was uh, Creepshow 3, which was torturous. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> not, a, not a great one. A no. true lobstrosity. Yeah, that was, that was definitely a true lobstrosity. And I, I, don't, I think I really had to struggle to say anything positive about that one. So um, this, this has got to be a relief. Um, what is your first introduction to this movie? 
um, when I watched it two days ago after oh, you really? walked, asked me to do this podcast. Yeah, I hadn't seen it before. I had seen Pet Cemetery, the Mary Lambert original. Um, from I think we watched it on my horror movie podcast, The New Flesh. Yeah. Nice plug here. Uh, I think we watched it like four years ago when we were doing some Stephen King stuff. And I never grew up watching the Mary Lambert original. So I have like no nostalgia for it or anything. Interesting. And I thought it was like, yeah, I thought it was fine. And I didn't, I've never loved the original movie. I thought it was very TV movie esque. In the way it was like You're put together, me. which I know, I know a lot of people love that movie, and I'm sure most of your listeners do. So you may have picked the wrong person today, buddy. Just kidding. I actually really ended up liking this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just because it's so trashy and like more deranged than the first one, and um, it just has no, you know, there's no Stephen King's Pet Cemetery two as a book. <laughs> no, I'm, no, not I'm, yet. Yeah, and I like the fact that they're just, you know, it's a classic case of a studio just saying, fuck it, we're going to make a sequel. And for that, you know, factoring that in, it's actually pretty commendable what they've done here. Yeah. Well, we're not alone on this discussion. We're not alone on this trail. Uh, There's a station wagon approaching. Who goes there? Hi, this is Rachel Ryder Reeves uh, from (laughs) Boise, Idaho, record store employee by day freelance uh typist writer by night nice nice. Um, yeah (laughs) well what is your first introduction or what was your first introduction to this film i saw this years after i saw the original and to be quite frank i didn't even know it existed Mm -hmm. uh when somebody told me there was a pet cemetery too i was like wait what but there's no like there's no book right i was it was like actually really confusing but uh, then I saw it and legitimately loved it. There's a lot of stuff in this film that really works for me. So I'm very excited to hear um, from everybody about what what they enjoy about it. I'm very excited, too. Uh, there's, this is this is interesting, too, because I believe when we dis- first discussed this film on our Pet Cemetery run in 2018, uh, I think Mel... A castle might have been the one that was like really praising it and i think all of us were like eh but i i, I too have like kind of similarly uh found a fondness to it I'm, I'm excited to talk about it but uh um whoa, 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 wait before we can climb <laughs> uh someone's riding down the hill on a bike who's that hi guys i'm megan navarro the um lead critic for bloody disgusting and co-host of the bloody disgusting podcast great to have you on uh you were one of the first people to respond actually um <laughs> to my prompt on twitter uh, about uh, if there are any uh, Pet Cemetery 2 heads out there. And you wrote uh, in a pretty incredible uh, dissection in defense of uh, Pet Cemetery 2 at a time when I don't think most people were actually even defending this movie. I, I was actually pretty yeah. surprised at the response and reaction uh, to the-, the outpouring of love for this movie. But I don't think that was the case in 2017 when you published that piece for the 25th anniversary. Um, no. Have you always loved this movie or is, have you kind of found no. a, a you know, reappraisal for it yourself? I mean, I watched it when it was pretty brand new on video because I was such a huge fan of the original, mm-hmm. watching it way too young. Um, but I didn't connect with it immediately because it is so drastically different. But then over the years, like once you kind of take it at its own um, film, not really as part of the Stephen King's book series, then yeah, it, there's a lot to love about this movie. So, I mean, I, I caught on to it much earlier, but not right away. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think there's something about the, the replay factor for this film that 
um, has stuck with me because for me, the the first time I had seen it was not in theaters. Uh, I remember seeing the posters just because I was a huge Eddie Furlong, Eddie Furlong fan. Um, just cause I, you know, as, as a kid growing up with uh, Terminator two. And so it was, I remember seeing the poster, but I don't think I ever really watched it until it like hit sci-fi channel or something like that. And I was like a latchkey kid growing up. And so like the idea of these kids like running around this small town with these fucking zombies chasing after <laughs> them, basically like that just like really scared me, especially the dog being possessed. So, um, I, I, it was one of the movies that I, I guess like I would just catch scenes for the longest time on television, never seeing the full thing. Um, until I think I sat down to watch it like sometime in the aughts and I was just like, Oh wow. Okay. This is definitely <laughs> a spirited, uh, a sequel compared to, uh, what I probably expected watching like the pretty dour original. Cause I, I, I just love Pet Cemetery is one of my favorite books by King. And I actually think the adaptation is one of the finest adaptations. I mean, it helps that King wrote it, but like, um, it's just such a wild detour, uh, with this one. So, um, excited to talk about it, but let's get to, you know, but we got to head up to the Micmac burial grounds. And while we're heading up there, uh, we, we got to talk about the, you know, the history behind the sequel uh, and we're going to do that in a section we call shit a concordance hey you people this ain't how americans act we gotta stop this the original was a huge success for paramount uh released in 1989 it grossed like 57 58 million dollars on uh you know 11 million dollar budget so clearly the suits were like all right we gotta go back to ludlow uh, they tapped, uh, Mary Lambert again to return. And, you know, she had a, a different vision for this sequel. One that actually really aligns with one of my main interests in the King's Dominion, which is returning to LA Creed. Um, and she wanted to basically return to her character years and years later when she's a younger woman and she was going to return back to Ludlow, um, with her cat. Uh, and I believe based on, we talked to her, we, we talked to Mary Lambert about two years ago. Um, God, is it two years? Yeah. Two years ago still, uh, when we were doing our pet cemetery coverage and she actually had teased this idea, um, to us saying, oh yeah, you know, we w- I wanted to do an Ellie Creed story and Paramount wouldn't let me, um, which is really infuriating, uh, because I think that would have been a really cool narrative arc to go on. And she digressed on that arc with uh, Buddy Disgusting, um, I think last year, maybe for um, when the new movie came out and like the 30th anniversary release was. And she basically said that Ellie would have been in Chicago at the end of the original movie. Uh, so I'm pretty sure her grandparents wouldn't have sent her back to live alone in that house after all that had happened. So I would just take the point of view that Ellie grew up in Chicago, but what had happened to her parents was not very discussed very much. I would have jumped ahead to have her be a young woman and I would have her go back to Maine with their cat. And then she kind of talks about like a, a, a bunch of like feral felines and all this other stuff. But I, it just sounds so really fucking cool. And as for me personally speaking, I've said a bunch of times in this podcast how much I'd love uh, for King to go back to the character of Ellie because I think it's such a, there's so much there, you know, she has the shining basically. Um, there's just so much story that you could tell. And the fact that the pet cemetery is still up there, um, you know, and Ludlow's been mentioned in passing throughout the books, it, it just would have been cool to do. But anyway, that didn't happen. It's so funny though, because <laughs> they made Ellie the focal point of the remake, which, yeah. but they did it in such a way that it, it just, you know, was, 
basically a marketing gimmick. Like I don't understand the way that they did that at all in this in the re, in the remake by changing the main you know impetus of the of the the plot basically. It's and then they it's interesting. To, to, yeah, to, it was interesting, but then they basically made a whole play about giving it away in the marketing. Like they had a whole press kit to be like, this is what we're doing. And don't worry, we're not going to change Stephen King's original too much, but we want to tell you ahead of time. And I'm like, it's a great idea to change, make it Ellie, the person who, what, you know, I'm trying to talk around it, but it's, it's crazy to me that they like undercut themselves by then revealing it in the marketing when it would have been such like a, big moment in the movie to wow this is what it's going to be there's a heel turn actually yeah they totally gave it away and and they don't spend enough time with it in the remake either like i think that's my biggest like problem with it i love the fact that they kind of shake things up and i i think what they do with having lewis spend time with ellie is like you know the dead um yes is is really interesting and i kind of wanted more i like i would have wished that they were able to get to that a little faster as opposed to doing like kind of beat for beat stuff from the original story because that stuff is really compelling. Like the bathtub sequence with like the staples, the, the, the scalp, like I, I just like, I love that stuff. And I feel like that actually is more in sync with what Lambert tried to do with the sequel where it was just like, all right, well, I'm going to go there. Like, we're just going to have fun with this, this, this medium, you know, this idea that the, the dead would come to life. And I'm just going to explore how wild we can get these themes and how crazy we can get the narrative and that that sort of boisterous ending without spoiling too much of the the remake which, which most people have you know if you're listening to the podcast you've seen it and I'm, i imagine megan rachel you've seen the remake right yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah i have I, I i liked it i think if you're gonna remake something like me personally like i want to see something different I'm i'm not a huge fan of remakes that just like like you said like beat for beat repeat what's already been done so i appreciated their you know attempt to put a little spin on the story yeah i i do agree though that maybe if it was withheld a little bit um it would have had a little bit more potency but yeah i enjoyed that part of it yeah and then i remember when it the trailer hit that was like the biggest it was just like an explosion on twitter because I, I like we had been waiting for it i knew it was gonna drop and then when we saw the reveal in there, I just remember Twitter. It just it was in, it was incessant that. Well, that I avoid trailers and I even knew about it because yeah. like, as I mentioned, they like they went out and gave an interview with like, I don't know if it was Rolling Stone or somebody, but they were like explicitly talking about the reasons behind the move to change it to Ellie. And I'm just like, the movie's not out yet. I know. Like, why are you doing that? I just remember there being a ton of discussions online being like, oh, it doesn't really matter about the spoilers. It's not going to really change the, the the trajectory of the sequel, but I, I I think or the you know the reception of the movie, but it, I think it I really do still wish they would have held, withheld it because it would have yeah, been. Yeah, I think interesting... I would have like I also don't think it's a bad it's that bad of a movie, but I think my experience was definitely tainted by walking away being like, well, they gave away their their one thing, yeah, their one like big change, yeah. Well, Megan got to go to the premiere. Um, I remember that was that was a big deal at South by in 2019 because I just remember, I remember they had like a lot of like, like kids in parades wandering around. Like we saw, I saw photos from it. But um, what oh, were you? Man. What was your take on like on that on the sequel? Like because like or the the remake? Because I know that I mean, do you think that there are some sort of like spiritual alignment with the remake and this sequel? Before the premiere, I actually did the set visit for Ooh, Pet nice. Cemetery. So, you know, I went up to 
I think it was outside of Montreal. Um, and it was a Friday the 13th. So it was extra <laughs> cool to Ooh. be in that cemetery and just see how like meticulously detailed it was to the books. Um, and I don't know that that was ever, that definitely wasn't the intention right away to um, reveal the the Ellie twist because that was something, I mean, it was a really small, there was only four of us that night and it was a scene where, well, I don't want to venture into spoilers if somebody hasn't seen the movie, but um, when you're on a set visit, usually you're watching the scene from like the video village mm -hmm. um, right next to the set. And sometimes you'll see, like if you're paying close attention, you'll see them kind of rewind stuff. So what it just two of us happened to notice as big fans of the book that there was something really off. Um, there was a child in a mask that's not in the books. And so we're starting to conspire. And then the scene being filmed, you know, he's he's calling out for Ellie in a scene that it would not make sense. And and <laughs> I'm like clicking that uh yeah, they're they're swapping it out, which makes sense when you see the child who plays Gage and he's like two years old, itty bitty, you know, yeah, way smaller right. than the Gage in the original. And I'm like, OK, this is what's happening. And then you see the publicist's face kind of like, oh, shit, oh, shit. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure that was ever the intention. I don't know if, if you know, them realizing that there was a possibility that this would come out in, in the set visit reports kind of right. contributed in any way. I don't I'm not going to be presumptuous to assume that, but. Um, yeah. And as far as your question of, of how I feel about it, I actually like it. Does it, is it perfect? No, but mm -hmm. I kind of like the idea that it's a remake meant to exist as kind of a supplement to fans of the novel. I mean, it, it exists on the same shelf yeah. where it's like, if you, we made this for fans, but we're putting our own slant on it. So it's not an exact duplicate. So I, I really liked that they, they were going for it and that it's meant to exist in this same kind of space. Yeah, like it, it is kind of weird how like the, collectively the three movies have like this strange connective tissue um, to it. I mean, I, you know, obviously this is a direct sequel to the original one, but like I, I still feel like um, the energy, especially in that second half of the remake, has is almost feels almost like a spiritual homage to this because by with with this one, you know, it's. <laughs> Uh, it's balls of all crazy. I mean, and, and, and that was, that, and that was by design. It wasn't like happenstance. It wasn't like, you know, um, uh, it wasn't like, uh, you know, like happenstance or it just didn't happen by accident. I mean, like there's literally like Lambert, um, was interviewed in LA times, uh, as recently as last year. And, uh, she said that, you know, Pet Cemetery 2 didn't get as much love as it should have. I actually wanted to make her an irreverent movie that had a lot of dark humor in it. Uh, I knew it was not going to be as scary as the first movie because we didn't have Steven involved. So I went for that from the very beginning. And what is the worst thing that could happen to a 12-year-old boy? What if his mother marries the hard-ass sheriff and the hard-ass sheriff in town because it's your stepfather? But actually, no. What's worse is if the sheriff dies, you bury him in the cemetery and he becomes a zombie. And now you have a hard-ass sheriff zombie as a stepfather. Honestly, that's funny to me. Like, I read that quote just because the fact that that was like the initial conceit of this movie makes me appreciate this film even more because it's like it would have been i mean if could you imagine if they made a sequel to the original pet cemetery and it was just as dour like you just follow another like they almost do like the ghostbusters 2 thing where they just kind of redo the the original story it's like well here comes a new you know a new family that comes into town and you know there's a tragic death and you know we have the same rigmarole that happens again what's great about this is that 
it it kind of feels like the they they just took the black humor of that final ending where he's embracing his wife uh with Rachel uh and where Lewis is embracing Rachel and there's like pus cuts coming out of the eye and you're just sitting there just being like this is fucking crazy like this is you know like a Peter Jackson movie at this point but um and I, and I love that they just made like a 90 minute or you know 100 minute movie on that and so I don't know I think the boisterousness really works and I think it makes sense and this is something that you talked about in, in your article Megan that Richard Outen was the screenwriter um and if you know and Richard Outen's got a really strange career um he was uncredited for uh I mean he had a lot of undeveloped screenplays that happened including one for the Goonies too which I'd kill to read that screenplay but he also wrote for like briscoe county jr um which is just perfect camp um but really he was uncredited for gremlins 2 the new batch which i mean i think all of us here (laughs) have got to be fans of that movie that's just it's probably the most essential uh balls to the wall crazy sequel that you could do i mean set the bar for it so it kind of makes sense that this movie would follow suit. Uh, I mean, Megan, what do you make of Outen, Outen being here? Because it is strange that he doesn't have too many credits to his name outside of that. Like, it's. I wonder if he's just his brazenness is what kind of kept him on the fringe in Hollywood. I, I honestly have no idea what the selection process was for this. I'm curious because like you said, Mary Lambert had an idea and they were like, nah, we don't really want a teen lead. So let's go with this guy yeah. because he knows zany. It's, it's insane. <laughs> like the stuff that they, they come up really with. really capitalized on the furlong uh, being in Terminator. Like that has to be the entire impetus for casting him, right? Like he, it wasn't like the summer after. Yeah. Or, like, I mean, getting my timing wrong. This is, so I have some, some really wild notes for furlong for the next, for the next <laughs> section. But I do think that the fact that like Paramount was like, no, a female lead, a young female lead is not going to sell which is ridiculous when you think about some of the movies, at the, you know, at the time and even before then. But um, so like, I guess like, you know, there are probably, I could just imagine the suits being like, oh, who's that boy that was in a, you know, James movie last year? Uh, <laughs> you know, the, you know, the kid that was, uh, you know, screaming along with, uh, with, with Arnold uh, and they like, you know, they spend like five minutes doing quotes and then, you know, they talk about whether or not they can get Robert Patrick. And then finally, you know, a, a rep comes back and is like, ah, it's Eddie Furlong. I, I have his, I have his number on the, the you know, on the line. Um, I could just imagine. Yeah. I'm sure Furlong was the big deal because I mean, they, sur- they pretty much center the whole movie around him. I mean, they, like I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Edwards in a, in a bit in the, the next section, but like it's, it is his movie. Um, and it totally, it totally worked. My husband, when I was telling, you know, I was watching it and he's like, man, I remember when I was a kid, cause he loves Terminator and loved Terminator too. When that came out, like I wanted to see it so bad because of Edward Furlong and my parents wouldn't let me cause it was too scary. Like that was his only association with Pet Cemetery too. He's never actually seen it, but he remembered like how bad he wanted to see it just because Edward Furlong was it's, in it. He was such a see the marketing movie. executives are sometimes right. They, they are. know what they're doing. That's, I mean, that's lasting impact. He was the mm-hmm. he was the original bad boy for me. I mean, like you had at the time I was born eighty four, so for me it was like, oh wow, who's Bart Simpson? And then wow, Bart Simpson in real life is Eddie Furlong. Like he's. <laughs> fucking hacking atms and like i still use the term easy money like every time i pull uh, cash out of an atm i say it to myself and the person behind me is probably like who the fuck is wrong with this guy (laughs) but 
Um, like, anyway. Is he referencing Edward Furlong? Yeah, <laughs> they turn around. They're like, uh, Terminator <laughs> 2? I'm like, yep. Um, and then, we, you know, we get a long discussion. And it was like, well, Nick Stahl's pretty good at John Connor also. But um, anyway, <laughs> last few notes on, on uh, the history of stuff. Uh, Stephen King actually had his name removed. He kind of had, this is kind of a bad time for, uh, for King uh, adaptations. This is like literally the same year, I believe, that Lawnmower Man comes out. So he's just fucking vitriolic at this point. Just like, they're, they're ruining my works. Uh, but so he took his name off of this. Uh, and I, I don't know if that really hurt it too much. But, you know, film premiered August 28th, 1992. Can't even imagine what I was doing at that time. Probably getting ready for school. But uh, debuted at nine, nine, number three at the box office and grossed only seventeen million, so <laughs> less than half the box office uh, of the original one. So not not not, not too great for Paramount. But um, you know, uh, I, I guess uh, t- turned out to be a cult classic. So we're here, still here talking about it, and um, you know, yada yada yada. But. Uh, does anyone else there have? Does anyone else have any notes for the history of the the movie that I didn't go over? Uh, I, this is usually just the section for me where I just like literally just read fact after fact. So I apologize; it's not too much of a discussion in this area. But um, if we have any um, other no, notes. I just think it's worth pointing out that like the executives not wanting to cast a female lead in their movie is something that like. It still happens today, I feel like, where executives just misguidedly make these grand gesture uh, decisions where they're like, no, that won't work. And it's like, it's been proven to have worked so many times since then and before then. And it's wild that how many movies we've been robbed of because of shit like that. You know what I mean? Like, not even just females, but like diversity casting. Like, you you listen to like uh, the history of like the Batman movies and like who was almost the Joker yep. and, and like all those type of things. And it's like, God, studio executives really shaped the casting decisions for so long. It's well, it's wild. it's wild how like some of the most like iconic movies would have just been totally fucked over by the suits. Like yeah. I, I was listening to an episode recently on like Escape from New York and like the studio is adamant on having like Tommy Lee Jones or... Um, Oh God, who was, who was the other one? They had? Oh, uh, it was, um, I think Nick Nolte for Snake Plissken, which I, I guess on paper at the time, I'm sure that that would have made sense. But could you imagine if like either of those, like, it's just like and Carpenter was yeah. like, no, I want, I want Russell, you know, I want, I want Kurt Russell. And it's like, I can't even imagine if like the studios got their way sometimes with, with some of this shit. I mean, they do. I mean, they, they did here, which is clearly what, you know, happened, but, um, yeah, I, it does still happen. I, I wonder if it happens as much on the TV medium. You know, if 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 they get you know filmmakers uh, in TV get their free reign a little bit more, you know. If, but yeah, I'm trying to, I was looking at the box office for this weekend too. It was beaten by Honeymoon in Vegas and Unforgiven. Oof. Yeah, well, Unforgiven in week four. Yeah, that's pretty. That's rough. That's that's really yeah. rough. It's I mean it's even rough for for like the, the you know the talent that's involved too. Which I mean with with Mary Lambert, it's it's unfortunate too because. You know, she's coming off of this blockbuster success. You know, '89 was such a good year, a huge year for her. You know, she gets she gets you know Pet Cemetery. The was it um like a prayer video, like is arguably one of the greatest videos uh like of all time. Um, you know, going up there to rival with like Thriller. Um, and I do think that this kind of set her back a little bit. Like, and it sucks because it's like. It was a project that was given to her through Paramount and they didn't even really give her any agency. And it's just like, I don't know, I, 
fucking hate Hollywood sometimes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that was all I was getting at. Basically. You know, um, it just really sucks. But um, one thing I did forget to mention is that uh, Academy Award winner tied to this, uh, Russell Carpenter. Um, no relation to John Carpenter, I don't believe. But uh, he, um, <laughs> the Titanic cinematographer, did this movie. <laughs> so Whoa. that's pretty wild. <laughs> Um, oh, and also, he also did the Lawnmower Man. So there's some King's Dominion there. How about that? Um, oh but, man, Lawnmower. <laughs> oof, rough, <laughs> rough. That was that was another that was Favorite a previous Lobstrosities. Yeah, yeah. Lawnmower Man. <laughs> uh, yeah, there is a Game Boy game in a Sega CD game. Uh, that was it another movie a, where like the suits yeah. were like, this is going to be huge. We need to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need to make Lawnmower Man merch. And when you actually look at the origin of that story, you're like, how the fuck did they ever make a movie about that? But. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Um, anyway, let's go to the next section um, the, that I like to call the, uh, the cockatet. Do they have guns and bullets in your world? You're going to like Earth a lot. All right. Well, in this section, we're going to talk about the casted crew of Pet Cemetery 2. We already talked about him, Edward Furlong. Now, what is everyone's relationship with Edward Furlong? Were you, would we, is he overrated, underrated? Uh, what, what do you think? Megan, what are your thoughts on Edward Furlong? <laughs> I think overall, a little overrated. He's great in Terminator. Uh, he does really well here, um, you know, for what his character is. But he just kind of goes on a steady decline after, you know, brain scan. It's not really him that makes brain scan memorable, but the trickster and just the outlandishness of the plot. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I I think he just kind of faded from there. So, you know, he he had stellar uh, casting and, you know, James Cameron (laughs) to work with that got his career like a much needed boost right out the gate. But eh, yeah. I can take him or leave him. Does he work as Jeff Matthews? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for for what his character is here is like, I mean, he's a teen boy. He's an angsty teen boy who misses his mommy. And he he does that well. Yeah. 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 I I, I love like he still kind of has that, um, you know, like whenever in Terminator 2, like when like, you know, the T-800 picks him up or like the the T-1000 knocks him around. He has that kind of like weird sort of like, you know, like kind of squeal to him. Squeaky boy. Yeah. Yeah. So I loved hearing that. I thought that was that was good. I, uh, Brett, what what are your thoughts on Furlong? Are you you for or against? <laughs> um, I don't have super strong feelings. I'm as I said, I didn't grow up with this movie. I'm I was born in 1991. I'm gonna age myself. I'm very young. 
I'm a, I'm a youngin. So like I didn't, I grew up, I was gonna say my first, when you think of Edward Furlong, I think of watching Pecker on HBO. Yes. <laughs> because it was like a movie called Pecker and I thought there'd be boobs in it or something like that. <laughs> that is what I remember watching. And I remember seeing bits of uh, American History X and uh, Detroit Rock City. He's in, oh right? yeah. Oh, love him in Detroit Rock City. Like, yeah. 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 So my I like you know I know that era Edward Furlong so I just uh, not super strong feelings about him but uh Pecker's a fun movie if I recall very fun movie um got some fun little notes just on him in a second but uh, Rachel what do you think about uh good old Eddie <laughs> what does he work in this movie for you I he Overall, I'd say yes. I think that when it comes to like moody stares and like sullen attitudes, like he he can't be beat. Like he plays that character so well. Because um, honestly, I don't think he really has to try. I think that is Edward Furlong for the most <laughs> yeah. part. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's very authentic, and he he totally captures that angsty young teenager. And in a lot of ways, I think that that was kind of leading. You know, in, later in the 90s, I think a lot of teenagers got really sort of cast that way or portrayed as really apathetic and lazy or spoiled and kind of that, you know, generalizations. And I think that he really does capture that in this film and mm-hmm. even in Terminator. Um, when it comes to emotional range, um, not really convincing. I, I know. You know, when yeah. he's like crying and screaming, like I don't necessarily really believe it. But <laughs> when it, you know, for the most part in, in this film, I think he does pull it off pretty well. Yeah, I, I think it's I think what's interesting with him is that he really was kind of like the 90s Corey Feldman. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like someone who, who was pretty much awash in a lot of controversy. This is pretty much the beginning of a really wild decade for him. And that's pretty much what he's got. I mean, he it's, it's pretty wild that like, this is his immediate follow-up to T2, probably not the greatest choice. And he probably had it already maybe insecure, like, like secured down. I'm before. assuming he got fucking paid yeah. for this movie. Yeah. That's like all I can think is they just like most of the budget for the movie was probably to this kid. Well, it's like he clearly was, you know, taking advantage of his celebrity at the time. Cause I mean like literally like two months later, he released an album in Japan. <laughs> oh, what? Yeah. Yeah. It's called hold on tight. I, and it has like a cover of the doors. People are strange. Uh, which, hey, a link to Corey Feldman. It's the Echo and the Bunnyman cover for the Lost Boys. But um, it's so, yeah, Holy he has balls. an album in that. This is where it gets crazier. It gets so fucking crazy. So the same time, he starts having like a, a like kind of a relationship with his stand-in tutor, who is like 28 Uh-oh. years old. Um, oh, no. extremely 90s shit going on. Right? Yeah. And like, so I guess apparently like uh, this is coming straight from... Um, uh, Wikipedia, but like when California's statutory rape law changed in 1994, it allowed like the prosecution of adult women with like having sex with Myers. So, like, his uncle actually pressed charges, but like, oh it's crazy to think that like, so Pet Cemetery comes to comes out and he's like pretty much in a relationship, you know, behind the scenes with a 28 year old who's literally probably teaching him on set during this movie. Um, and I know it's given that wild ride and this is before he got really into like the drugs and alcoholism like he kind of recovers big time like i mean after this he goes from (laughs) i mean we mentioned brain scan but he he worked with jeff bridges in american heart 
in 93. He goes and works at Tim Roth uh, in Vanessa Redgrave, actually, in Little Odessa in 95. Meryl Streep and Liam Neeson in Before and After in 96, which, God, I remember my mom dragged me that movie and I just was, like, dying. But, I was going to say, I'm surprised you remember. These are all movies that do not exist. Like, I cannot well, but, <laughs> conjure but, up imagery of any of them. But I think Maybe what most people remember him for, but I think this whole stretch is just, I think, critically great for him. But like what I think people really remember is like it's just a total like blank window of like, all right, well, you have the early era for a long where he's got this Terminator 2 and brain scan, which I remember for sure, because that was like I was I had the same type of hair. I was really pudgy, but like I really wanted to be Edward Furlong. I thought he was just the fucking coolest kid. I had his action figure, which was like hard to find from Terminator 2. So it was really fun. But then it's the later era stuff that I think a lot of people also remember where, you, as you mentioned, Pecker, Detroit Rock City was a big one. And then obviously um, American History X. And that's kind of it. Like he just vanishes. Like the odds are just not kind to him. And I guess it makes sense. I, I, think, I think it's right. I think the emotional range kind of really hurts because he really could only play like the bad boy because that's who he is, you know? My understanding, if correct me if I'm wrong, was... He, like didn't he 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 had like drug addiction oh problems yeah oh yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah where it's sad. It's sad. if i recall he was supposed to be in terminator 3 but then they got nick stall instead mm-hmm. because it was like right around the time when he was like not doing very well it's kind of like you could almost say there's like a john connor curse because if you think about it like all right so he starts off in, as john connor in terminator 2 some major problems nick stall stars is john connor in 2003 oh, right. he has Where, some what, major problems also that after guy? that yeah. i mean it was after yeah. terminator it wasn't even before like, he was pretty fine after that and then then you have christian bale who stars as uh, as john connor and literally gets in the huge uh like controversy for like the leak tape that comes out with it or terminator salvation and then i don't know I don't, I don't really got anything for jason clark but um <laughs> i guess he, he, we've he, still got time yeah but but hey there's a link cool link jason clark plays uh, john connor in genesis uh i believe they are both in ludlow in pet cemetery the remake for jason clark so ah. there's there's your link there but anyway do we have any more thoughts on for long before i move on to the next principal cast <laughs> i think that sums it up all right all right well Next up is Anthony is Anthony Edwards. Um, I I, I kind of for, always forget that Anthony Edwards is in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. It's the leading men of of this franchise are pretty stale. Yeah. Uh, totally. Hundred percent. I agree about that. I mean, how many how many leads in movies are veterinarians? I know. Yeah. I mean, trying to think However, of. I, I love that. I love that. That's I. You know, I something I enjoy about this one is with yeah. how they much they play up the pet yeah. thing. So to me, like that's yeah. like a really endearing thing about that. So I will say that I I support the lead vet. <laughs> his, yeah, his character isn't the problem. It's just something about being like the the father in these movies where you have to be as bland as possible. Like Dale Midkiff, he's not good. No, yeah. you know Anthony Edwards. He's boring, even yeah. when he's supposed to be in like peak action scenes. And you know, Jason Clark probably fares a little bit better than both, but still, yeah, you guys are sleeping. Yeah, because it's. I mean, there's not really. I mean, I think a lot of the problem is is that so much of like, especially the Lewis Creed character, you're in his head in the book. You know, like yeah. literally the first time you meet him, he's kind of like, all right, I can't. I gotta ditch these this family and just drive down to Disney World. And, like, I think that's like in right. the, the third or fourth paragraph of the book. 
Um, and I think, I think well, one of the things I think we we joked around with Lambert was like, well, Midkiff is really hot, and that was like the best part <laughs> of his performance. I think that and like you know him taking yeah. the shot to the head when he falls off the bed, but. Um, yeah, not very interesting. And it, it you know, what's weird for Edwards is that this is kind of a really curious time in his career. You know, he is still like years it's removed. Pre ER, pre ER. So he's around. He's in Northern Exposure at the but time. But post Goose, yes, yeah, I was say, post Top Gun, yeah, which he never was able to really <laughs> capitalize on. Like he has this wild early run. Reason like Fast Times Region High. He's in Re- Revenge of the Nerds. He goes and does, uh, you know, Top Gun. And then he just gets really interesting with his choices, but they just don't work. Like one of the, my favorite roles of his is in Miracle Mile and like one of the more underrated oh, yeah. gems. It's such a fucking good movie, but no one, I think it was it just too bleak and I, I just don't think it worked, but like still curious choices. Um, and I love him in that movie. And it's just, I just don't think he really ever found his footing until you are. Um, yeah. so, and it kind of, you kind of get that sense of um, meanderingness to him here like I, I almost like get the sense that he doesn't even like he does he definitely doesn't realize what movie he's in in this no. movie um, no so um it's I, crazy to think that he like yeah you're you're made me think about his career and what it could have been i guess after yeah. top gun like he was <laughs> next to tom cruise in like one of the biggest movies of that time yeah and he ended up being on like a network television drama that i watch with my mom like how did that happen well i I don't want to get into like appearances but as someone who's like terrified of uh who's constantly worried about losing hair um myself i wonder if that had something to do with it because it's like you know i wish we were zooming so i could show you my humongous bald spot on my head oh i'm i'm literally it's my my girlfriend loses her mind because every other day i just get up and i'm just like i don't know why i'm losing it and then so like i just (laughs) sound like jack torrance just wandering around my house um but uh so yeah i mean i i do wonder if that's kind of why like maybe it's i think it's the hair so much as he's not your conventional leading man i mean you look at top gun where he's standing next to val kilmer and tom cruise and he's just like your sweet boy next door type not like your action takes charge romantic lead so i think he just maybe was not figuring out the parts that he does well like he doesn't pull off this character well but he totally pulls off that sweet endearing doctor type or you know, the partner who has the tragic moment in Top Gun, like he just miracle mile. He's the sweet romantic lead in in an overall bleak movie like that. That type of role is what works really well for him. Yeah, I agree. I th- I think it's it doesn't help that he's yeah, he's always been paired with hunks. Like if you yeah. think about like ER and, and also like the Zodiac, even Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, hey. Hollywood needs that. He's found his niche. Yeah, he's doing. Yeah, I think. I also wonder sometimes if when people pivot to TV so hard, I just wonder maybe these this person enjoys the schedule of television more than doing movies, which is such a different thing, you know, or the stability or anything. That definitely (laughs) happens. It does. Yeah, you know. Well, look. Um, I think we got to go to the star of this this movie, which I think all of us wanted to talk about him. Mr. Clancy Brown. Oh my God. Um, just he, if you want to talk about someone who didn't know his, he was in the movie, like this is the direct opposite. This guy is the movie you know. and knows exactly what Lambert is trying to do here. Um, 
this might be my, I don't want to say it's my favorite Clancy Brown, but it's pretty up there. Like this is his, this is just such a fucking tour de force performance from him. He's insane. Um, yes. And this Rachel go all like, do you think that, uh, do you agree? Would you agree with the, that Clancy Brown pretty much owns Pet Cemetery too? Oh, 100% without a doubt. Like he, like you said, he understands what the movie is and he embodies it and he exudes it and you know on in the beginning we get the arrogant asshole and then at the end it's just full camp and it's just so i mean the mashed potato scene i like yeah. can't get it out of my head like that whole thing i don't know if there's a list of like top mashed potato things scenes <laughs> in movies but like it's up there with close encounters i was just gonna say story, close encounters you know like yeah was, it's, we all have that one in the chamber yeah it's so great and he just yeah he makes the whole thing for sure without a doubt he's terrifying in this he's he's legit terrifying and and also at the same time uh surprisingly charming like even in the beginning like i mean even though he's a total shithead and a misogynist like I, I there's something about him that i i find i think it's the swoop hair i'm just gonna say it's the hair like it's it's <laughs> his hair is great in this like he, he looks great um megan what are your thoughts on clancy brown in this i think this would be if nothing else clancy brown is the sole reason to buy a ticket or rent that vod whatever like he is the definitive reason to watch this movie um, I love him so much. And you were talking, we're talking about how Edward Furlong doesn't have any range. He's just that one beat angsty bad boy. Clancy Brown demonstrates a wealth of range in this movie alone from intimidation. Like he's very sinister and intimidating and imposing as a villain, but also likable. He's really a jerk, but then there's so you can see why his wife would marry him. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like, like Rachel said, the, the mashed potato scene alone, like he embraced, he's the only one, as far as I'm concerned, who knows what type of, well, that and, and the mom, but yeah. those two are like the only two actors that know what they're in mm-hmm. and they chew scenery, like nobody's business. And I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, there's so many like like the when it comes to like the one-liners almost like he's it's not even really one-liners per se it's just like this sort of the delivery i guess i'd say it's just like all the delivery of the lines are just so like they're like an ec comics uh like you know parable i like love it so i don't know brett what about you what do you think um i was sold when he introduces himself to edward furlong by basically saying hey kid i uh fucked your mom like like... 30 years ago your dead mother (laughs) like it's it's an insane way to introduce the character and i a funeral too right yeah Yeah. where he says it (laughs) yeah it is it is absolutely out of control and from there i'm just like that's like there's so much deranged human behavior in this movie and most of it is from clancy brown yeah and yeah, he really does make the movie. It's just when I think about this movie, I will think about uh, the the bicycle scene. I will think about the mashed potato scene, and yeah, everything comes down to Clancy Brown, who I didn't know until just now is the voice of Krusty Krab, uh, Mr. Krabs on SpongeBob. Wait, I don't know really? Why I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Wow, like He's act- also like spon- crazy spon- voice actor apparently. Yeah, I know that he. Uh, well, he's in the Mortuary Collection this month, which is like a total transformative oh, so performance. Good. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I, I think a, I'm gonna put that on the night. But voice in uh, Crash Bandicoot of Doctor Cortex. So Wait, he's what? 80s and God of War Three. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, there crazy. are a lot of weird connections because honestly, he's pretty much a Rolodex in Hollywood when you think about it, with especially with genre. But like, he's got yeah. connections to Anthony Edwards because he was in Revenge of the Nerds three, the first uh, Edwards list uh, revenge movie. Um, multiple connections in King's Dominion. Uh, he's going to be, you know, he was in Shawshank two years later. Uh, he's in this. Uh, as you mentioned, I didn't know that he was in SpongeBob, but in SpongeBob, um, the the voice. Um, oh god damn it I forget the voice of Patrick I believe is also the uh, who's the actor from Coach he's also in The Stand so there's some um, uh, you know some some connection there but uh, I mean Buckaroo Banzai Blue Steel Tales from the Crypt the guy's everywhere like he's fucking everywhere and like I, I love him I, it's just he's and apparently he's like the nicest guy in the world I've never met him and I've never talked to him but like everyone from all accounts I've heard that he's supposed to be great is like an awesome person to talk to, but um, I don't know. And I, I think that he really helps the film kind of avoid some of the pitfalls of the original. Um, you know, I know everybody's, you know, got their opinions on the original and it is amazing, but there seems to be my problem with it is that sometimes the pacing and some of the emotional tone of it gets a little bogged down. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, Gus's character in this like really just keeps the momentum and it keeps the humor and it just brings the movie back um, from some of those little bit of slower kind of more subtle moments. And yeah. so I, I think it just like his character and his performance just like it, it does. It makes the movie and helps the whole thing become more effective and more enjoyable. Yeah. I think because you've got the human element there, like the the first movie, you have a cat, <laughs> and then you have a toddler, and it's not finally, you know, it's only in the final moments that you have an actual formidable villain. You know, Gage is great; he's a little creepy toddler though, and here yeah. you've got this jerk before he even transitions into something worse. Like, how do you make this monster into a bigger monster? We're going there. So he's got more of a satisfying arc, I think, and more of a presence than a cat and a toddler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect point. Yeah. yeah, I didn't even I didn't even think about it that way, but that makes total sense. <laughs> it's like they're they have just more fun, you know, and like yeah. it's it's it, they have the opportunity to be more fun because it's like, you know, you lose an animal that sucks. You lose a, you know a kid that's you, the worst in the world. But like. You know, a bunch of assholes being buried. Like all the bull- like pretty much all the people, with the exception <laughs> of the mother, are like pretty awful people <laughs> that are buried in this. So it's like, you know, it, it's kind of like one of the parables that uh, Judd shares in the first one, um, where like the I guess what is that the Timmy Bannerman mm-hmm. is buried and he comes back and you kind of see the goofiness a little bit, even though it's not really. I mean, actually, for me, I think that scene is the whole thing is terrifying, and especially the way they describe it in the book, but. Um, the idea of it and the kind of kookiness of it and the fact that like he's living in a house with them, you only see it in glimpses. So it's scary. But like, if you really think about it logically, it's this. <laughs> so, and to see it play out is, is, is really fun. And it's kind of going back to like with the remake, it's like, that's what I want. I wanted all of that. Like if they had a whole movie where you just have like the dead living in the house, like f- fucking sign me up. I'd love it. Um, I also really, what I enjoy about Clancy Brown and I guess the movie in general is that, this movie has some of the most vicious movie bullies I've ever seen in my oh, life. God, like, yeah. It's so cruel. <laughs> they, they steal his kitten and then construct a dummy of it. They're his dead mother's likeness yeah. <laughs> and tripping and tricking him into believing she's returned from beyond the grave. Like what happened to stuffing kids in lockers? 
this is a little <laughs> a little too far. But Clancy Brown becoming dead and then going to fuck that kid up is like the most satisfying thing yeah. ever. It's yeah. great. It's this weird pretzel like uh, Hammurabi's code or like uh, um you know the like uh karma like it's like a, it's a weird mm-hmm. sense of karma in this movie um mm-hmm. that i guess morally probably doesn't add up all the way but you know whatever um i love it so uh let's move on to jared rushton because i think all of us recognize him from all the movies that we had on vhs or dvd growing up um like honey i shrunk the kids big lady in white even overboard if you're you know um wanted to go way back then um jared rushton to me it, it you i mean this is an opportunity for him to be a total asshole in ways that he's always been like the punk kid like in big he's hilarious is like you know the attitudinal like you know sidekick honey i shrunk the kids he's just such an asshole brat but like this like yeah like you're saying brat like this he is such a fucking asshole in this movie like i i can't stand him like like i always get pissed off when he like pulls up on the motorbike and all edward furlong is doing is just like riding his bike and he's just like uh well you know what i'm I'm gonna do is i'm gonna throw you off the side of a highway ruin your fucking life right now yeah he's horrible for no reason like it's he's totally ace merrill from you know the the king's dominion and I, I just love how much of an asshole he is uh what does everyone else think about jared oh he's a bully for sure <laughs> just like what you guys are saying i mean a kitten like come on <laughs> like you're yeah. really gonna like take some kids little kitten and then i don't know yeah so he he is definitely a good bully he was a good casting there i think yeah yeah, yeah great casting um you definitely want the entire audience with you when you're going to have an adult kill a kid, you know, and they really they did a good job because I was totally rooting for him, especially in that scene, because Clancy Brown plays it so funnily, like mm-hmm. the whole like he's kind of surprised that of, by what he did on acts like it's almost an accident. And then he just kind of keeps going with it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Megan, what do you think about Jared? You've all said it. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. What more can be said? Let's talk about the other great presence in this movie, uh, Darlene Flugel. I believe that's uh, you say the Darlene Flugel. Uh, tragically, she passed away in 2017. Um, hell of a resume. Uh, she was in Eyes of Laura Mars, uh, Once Upon a Time in America, to live in uh, Die in L.A., Running Scared, and she was a regular on Crime Story. Um, I think is the is the dead mother. Like, I feel like she knows the right... She's, again, like, brown. Perfect tone for this movie. Like, at times, like, almost feels like she's, like, a deadite in, like, Army of Darkness yeah. or Evil Dead 2. Um, what do you all think about her? I think she's channeling Mary Lou from Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, wild. Like, the ending in this is... It's so maniacal and so cartoonish and so larger than life. And it's all largely indebted to her. Like at that point, like she just takes over the whole thing. Um, yeah. You get Clancy Brown out of the movie. What do you do to to fill that gaping void? She does it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too how she bookends the film because I, I really like the opening scene too. Mm-hmm. Like I really, I really like how the whole thing especially if you're going into it blind like just how that opens oh like up the there. movie the fake movie uh, yeah the like fake the, fake, the yeah. fake movie and just her interaction with you know edward furlong's character and just that whole 
that whole part I think is just really great. And so it's nice to bring her back at the end and she just one ups herself. It's, I think it's great. Isn't it odd how similar the, um, the opening of this movie is to like the opening of new nightmare, which would arrive like two years later. <laughs> yeah. You know? And yeah, like you what? Seed of, yes. seed of Chucky many years later. Oh yeah. I feel like so true. many movies have done that now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the the opening with her pretty much sets the tone for the rest of the movie. Like you can't take it seriously. Like it's so insane. Like it's like an opera. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, like the huge opening. melodramatic grand guggenol like. <laughs> yeah, like a MC Escher like watching the water drip on the thing that's gonna end up killing her. Like it's a, it's a pretty suspenseful sequence. It's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, I love it. Um. Well, we got two more characters. I'm just going to pair them. Lisa Waltz and uh, Jason McGuire. Not much to say about Jason McGuire. Georgia actor. Um, me and my friends growing up, just we used to always uh, quote the line where he's just like, you know, Edward Furlong pours his heart out. And he's like, yeah, let's get out of here. Like, I just, <laughs> we used to use that line like all the time, just kills me. But um, he's all right. And he sells the, the, the fear there. But I think Lisa Waltz, total... Um, veteran actress uh been in half a dozen things like or no dozens of things actually i mean you, i recognize her from x-files and my so-called life um i feel absolutely awful for her in this movie like mm-hmm. probably the only real source of like goodness in this film in a way like you know she's kind yeah. of pure spirited and, like she's just in a shitty situation like i i knew so many mothers growing up like that were stuck in this fucking situation or it's just like oh well you know he's an asshole but you know we're getting by like and it's if that that was like the, the the real sense of like um realism in this movie comes from her i don't know if i'm alone in that and thinking that but i i kind of feel that way about both the the gilbert family i mean mm-hmm. jason mcguire isn't nearly as strong as she is but he's still plucky enough to mm-hmm. where they are the source of purity when everybody else is making terrible decisions or selfish based decisions or just flat out evil. Like these two are the representation of how this, you know, evil is corrupting in knocking out good people. Like they're, you feel for them, even like Jason's not good, but he's, he's character is good. You feel for his character and, and his love with his dog and even his bond with his mom. And like you said, you feel stronger for the mom, for Amanda Gilbert over anybody else. But yeah, I think they're, they're the, they're the innocent folk that get caught up in this madness. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that the death is brutal. Like even rewatching it, I know it's going to happen, but I'm still so shocked. Like if, it, if there's anything like that's like a parallel to the original one, like I feel like that's like their gauge moment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just brutal. Like it's, it's, I guess if you like listed out everything that happens, it's pretty comically brutal with like the potatoes. And then also, I mean, it just feels almost like a hot shots Dukes part, like part Dukes <laughs> like scene or whatever, but like, it's pretty harrowing. And, and I, and I, that whole sequence, I remember growing up just like, give me so much anxiety. Like, cause it just, there's such a sense of hopelessness that really kind of ekes out at that point. But, um, do you have any other thoughts on, uh, Lisa or Jason? Well, I, I think just what you were talking about, like, it's not it's not expected. Like, you didn't expect that to happen. At least I didn't. Like, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, oh okay. Like, that just that just happened. <laughs> and so I think it's it is a, like a shock factor moment, I guess, because they are so good and so like sweet and kind of like innocent the whole time that it it 
it makes their you know their death have carry more weight yeah right yeah no pun intended um yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah it, it rewatching it the other night um my girlfriend audibly gasped like she was like just on her phone just like looked and then like looked up and she's like wait they died i was like yeah they, like they, they he like <laughs> throws them like either basically you know pummels the car into a fucking you know probably one of the same trucks uh that that killed gage you know three years earlier but yeah uh, that scene is surprising <laughs> just so fucking relentless um well let's move on let's go let's go to our next section uh fun section we like to call beam breakers why does the man in black want to destroy the tower the tower protects both our worlds if it falls hell will be unleashed Look, this is pretty much the most important section we have uh, for Lobstrosities episodes. This basically asks, does this sequel take the name of the King property for marketing? Does, or does it actually capture the spirit of King? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is a tricky one because he's he has... A, that can mean so many things, the spirit you know, of King. Yeah. And, and I think you could argue for or against it here. Um, I think yes, because King does have a pretty warped sense of humor a lot of times. And this definitely is a warped sense of humor. Um, It does have that kind of small town vibe that he does, you know, that he's known for. So, I mean, I I would argue that yes. Yeah. I'm the same way. I, when I knew we were talking about this, I was, trying to think like okay what if it did say Stephen King you know on the cover like would that feel out of place or would it make sense and to me it makes sense like that wouldn't seem weird like it wouldn't seem like oh this is a poor Stephen King thing I think that there's they took King's works into consideration and there's a lot of things that do make sense like you said the small town the teens, the dark humor, there's a lot of things that I think that they were trying to do. And I think that they were making a valiant effort to keep the spirit there. And overall, I'd say, yeah, I think they do succeed. Yeah, I totally agree. If it, that's a good test. If it had Stephen King uh, on the cover, would it make it, would it be weird? And I think, no, I 100% agree that if you told me Stephen King had a hand in this in some way, or like a, you know, gave it his blessing, I would totally believe you because it does have that vibe. And as I've said earlier, I don't have any nostalgia for the first movie because I didn't grow up watching it. <laughs> and I actually feel like an ass for saying that, especially because I read the book for the first time like this year. And it was just, you know, it's probably one of my, definitely one of my favorite horror books I've ever read. It's just so good. And I don't think any of the movies particularly capture what I love about the book so well. Um, each of them, I think, does like portions of it for different reasons. Like the remake has like that whole third act part. I really like the vibe of it, but I don't think the whole movie worked. But uh, my point is, I really want to rewatch the original movie after having read the book and see if I feel differently. Yeah. Um, because I also have only seen it one time and it was like five years ago. And, you know, sometimes a mood can affect how you feel about a movie. And I feel like I'm not giving it a fair shake, especially considering how much I enjoyed this one. I feel sacrilegious liking the sequel that is like an unsanctioned uh, sequel than to the original that people like, you know? No, I mean, I think that's fair. No, I mean, because people like, I mean, 
I've I've seen people talk about how they like Doctor Sleep more than 1980s The Shining. Like, I mean, I yeah, I don't know. I, it's wild. It's a good movie, but yeah, I know, I know. But, but there, <laughs> Stephen but King out is there. probably one of those people, though. Oh, he? absolutely, he is. Um, yeah. he, he still talks about it like nonstop. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm somewhere in the middle too. I, I think that th- even the goofiness of this movie kind of speaks to King's sensibilities. Like you go read some of his short stories and especially like Skeleton Crew or um, definitely Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which was pretty much coming out around this time, maybe a year later. Um, They all have that sort of, uh, you know, tall tale uh, humor and, and horror to it that that's all over this movie. And there's certainly, there's certainly homages to, a lot of the works that he loves best. I mean, like King loved the evil dead series. And like, I feel like this is so similar to the evil dead or like the Raimi style. Um, and, and I think that's kind of intrinsic to, you know, his own sensibilities there. And and also like, yeah, the, the small town charm is all over this. Like if anything, that's like the one thing that like kind of keeps it tied to the original. And for that, I, I guess it, it does still feel like it, it, it's respected, respectful or mindful of uh, King's work in ways that like a lot of sequels aren't like we and we like the previous Lobstrosities we did was uh, the Rage Carry 2. And I like really went in and supporting it because I, I actually thought that they they did. You know, a lot of people argued on the, the episode that the connective tissue there was unnecessary. But what I argued was that like, well, they didn't have to have that connective tissue, but they tried. And like that try there is is important because, you know, it'd be so much easier to not have it. And like the fact that they did shows that they were kind of respectful there. Um, and I guess you could kind of argue if real cynical reasons that they only had it just so they can keep the IP and use it for branding purposes. And yeah, sure. I'm that that's, I'm sure what that's the suits at Paramount wanted to do, but the people that were actually in the driver's seat really, you know, tried something different. I think Lambert does here too. I mean, they said it three years after the original, um, you know, they acknowledge the creeds, uh, the Creed murders. I mean, they have the the campfire scene where they're basically they, the whole Creed family has turned into an urban legend the same way that any of the other characters that were involved um, with the McMack burial ground previously were, you know, like the Bannermans, uh, you know, all the stories that Judd told. So I like that. I like that link there. Um, I, I I love the idea that they walk by the mailbox with the, the house, even though it's not the house because they filmed this in Georgia and not in Maine it still looks like it. And I, and I just, I really, I always love when you can watch sequels and you can see like that sort of, you know, not that this isn't really a slight touch really. Cause it's literally right there in the foreground, but I always like when they do like the subtle nods to like the past and, and it's not so overt. And that's certainly the case here. And there's also some weird King con- uh, connections. Um, I, you know, did doing some research. I, I found out that the monster arm prop was uh, at the, the used at the beginning of the film is actually the same arm of the skeleton used in uh, 1990s it miniseries, um, <laughs> which is wild. Um, did some more casting links. Uh, so, you know, Furlong's here. In T2, his mother is uh, Linda Hamilton, plays Sarah Connor. Linda Hamilton had starred in Children of the Corn. So there's the King connection on that. Um, the I think the way that when Gus is chasing... Um, yeah, God, I forgot his name. Uh, it's, it's his stepson, basically. Um, it's kind of like The Shining, you know. It's very similar to like how he's opening the door with the hammer. Um, and apparently, according to IMDb, they say that 
I think I take this with a grain of salt, but the scene where the mom and her twin daughters are going into the Dr. Matthews office to look at the kittens is could be a, a nod to the the shining where they walk down the hallway. I, I don't I think that's a little stretch, but that's stretched. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. But either way, I think this is I think we all agree that very respectful. It doesn't break the beam. So let's let's move on to uh the worst moments of the movie in a section we call Cry Your Pardon. All right. What do we not like about this movie? <laughs> I'll start. They were mean to the kitten. Yeah. yeah. No, that's what I was going to say, too. There's a lot of animal violence in this movie. <laughs> so if if somebody's, you know, if that's an area of sensitivity for somebody, like, the, there is a decent amount. I love the amount of animals, but they're pretty rough on them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is there a no animals were harmed tag on this? I didn't see one. Oh, there's got to be. There's got to be. Yeah. <laughs> I will say that's why Randall uh, Culver, my co-host, wasn't on this episode, because he doesn't like to watch uh, any Is that right? Quality. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, um one thing i think is really funny about this movie is when the when zowie first comes back from the burial ground and his eyes are just like not even blood red but like cgi red (laughs) they're just so red and like uh, i'm pretty sure the parents of the kid just act like it's like oh here's your dog he's back like (laughs) take him in (laughs) he's fine (laughs) he looks Um, like the most feral thing on earth yeah yeah um what do I we th- could do without the scene, the dream, the nightmare yes. sequence with Anthony Edwards. Like that to me mm. is this, this does not belong in this movie at all. No, no. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, it I'm, feels, it feels very forced to me. It's very out of place. Totally. It's like, we don't know what to do with Anthony Edwards. He's so boring. So let's put them in this goofy dream sequence. It's so goofy. Like my my notes are like Manhunter blue sex scene with the dog. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Zowie. Like, Zowie. Yeah. Okay. Which, why? I mean, did they just need to have nudity in there for the sake of nudity? And like, it was just like, oh right, well, hey, look, you know, we're coming off the eighties. We we got to get some nudity in here, uh, and we got to get some trash and, and make it slimy and grimy. Let's just have. Uh, a little bestiality here also like what the fuck yeah. like it's wild. i don't know was it was it supposed to establish him as a more capable and you know <laughs> present dad like i i just feel like you've already spent so much time making edward burlong the lead in this movie dad could just co- show up at the end and be like whoopsie you were right mom's alive or i don't know like this this was not a necessary scene and i cannot figure it out unless anthony edwards is like let me look like a badass yeah yeah <laughs> it, it was in his contract like the rock does for the past <laughs> yeah i don't get enough for her action so let me get with zowie yeah he's like he walks in he's just like coked out of his mind he's just like look <laughs> If you don't give me a fucking sex scene, I didn't rip it. I'm I'm just going to lose my shit. Give me leading man scene stat. You know, uh, ridiculous. It just that that was my number one gripe is because it's just so loony. Like it's and it's loony for the bad, the bad and loony. Like it's just it's so irreverent. Like it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, Exactly. To me, it kind of pairs too with the character Marjorie, um, like the housekeeper that shows up. She also seems really forced, and I feel like it's kind of a similar thing. Like, oh, make Anthony Edwards a leading man, no. and have this like weird dynamic with this, you know, young woman that's in their house. And 
at the end too, I, I don't, I don't like how they kind of like pit the women against each other. And she's got like this weird admiration, you know, like fangirling basically and, like wearing her clothes and stuff. I don't know. That whole character yeah. just doesn't really work for me and doesn't seem necessary. Like, I don't, I don't feel like she adds anything no. of value. <laughs> I almost wondered if they were trying to kind of harken back to the first movie with, with Missy and mm-hmm. Missy was a very eccentric housekeeper. And they're like, let's do that again as some kind of really bizarre connective tissue. It doesn't work, but that was kind of like, maybe that's where they're going. I don't know. Oh, yeah. God. And that story is so, is so dark. Like that, just like the, mm-hmm. the loneliness when she kills herself and then, Oh God, that, that scene still like gives me the creeps. But um, yeah. The, and she also, the, 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 she looks a lot like the mom. So it's like, were they trying to make this like fucking vertigo situation here that's going on? Like where, you know, Oh, I'm still, you know, I'm attracted to this person, but I'm also not, I, I don't know. It just felt very, um, it just felt unwieldy like you know or wieldy like it just it, it, it didn't work at all um and one too many storylines i just think that you, you take that out you can simplify this a little bit more um we're blaming richard outen for that one yeah he's he's applying the new batch aesthetic here yeah <laughs> yeah um the I, I thought the main theme got a little redundant like a, you know like kind of like when you know when um we, the, the age of DVDs when you'd fall asleep and then like the men, the menu would be playing and like they would just oh, play yeah. like 45 seconds of like a, of a theme over and over again. Yeah. Like that's what it felt like with this theme, like, the, <laughs> like over and over. And then like sometimes you get the vocals in there and then maybe sometimes not. Like I, I actually want the vocals because I was like, all right, let's give me something to work with instead of the same guitar line that sounds like the beginning to like, I don't know, like a Metallica track from that era. Um yeah, that was me in college with the Arrested Development DVD menu music. Which was, <laughs> it's like a 15 second loop, and it would play all night. It was Oof, crazy. What a nightmare! That's, that's yeah. A, that, that that's a coarse theme to have playing on repeat. Do do. Um, <laughs> uh, the well, and, and oh, the score it. doesn't really it doesn't really do anything to contribute to like the emotional undercurrent at all. Like it's very tied to the action and like what's happening on the surface and i think that like a really good score helps support the characters a lot and i mean it's it's it doesn't do any of that in my opinion no um i actually like the insert songs more because it's like oh okay obviously like this is just like a fun background song cool like that makes sense but when you're trying to use the score in that way it it makes it really obvious and feel kind of jarring almost um and it kind of takes away from what is happening. So, sorry, Mark Governor, don't hate me. <laughs> I, I think he'll be all right. Uh, I think he actually has a, we- a wild uh, career that I I looked up before. He had um, so I guess he had he writes songs too. So like he's been in like and there's your SpongeBob SquarePants uh, connection there too. He he is a TV series writer on that. Like and he actually wrote a song. For, he did the Jellyfish Jam, I believe. Um, oh, funny. And uh, he had also, he wrote the songs Fading Away and Love Never Dies in this. Um, yeah. And, oh God, that's, that's wild. So like, I guess he, and then re- more recently, he's worked with Alexander Payne to do like Downsizing Nebraska. So he's doing fine. I think he'll live, he'll outlive this one. But um, yeah, and also like the, I will say the, the, the insert songs are great. Like John Rama is awesome. Um, I like the, I like the, the Ramon song, uh, Poison Heart. I mean, it's not as catchy as Pet Cemetery, but um still a good song not bad yeah you know um Um, funny funny little personal connection so there's a song by the nymphs in there Mm. um 
That's really great. And a woman I work with at the record store, her husband uh, was in the Nymphs. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> so that's really funny to me. I'm like, oh, wait, that's Sam's band. Like, that's fun. Like, <laughs> that's oh, awesome. I know somebody who is, you know, on the outskirts of involvement. <laughs> I, I I will I would have loved like if so this is like ninety two, if they just like went like full on Cameron Crowe singles and just like every other fucking you know scene is just like a song from like, um like Pearl Jam's ten or uh you know like Soundgarden's um, you know, like one of their first two albums or something yeah. like that just like go all in on the grunge and just like these they, popular singles that take you totally out of the movie. <laughs> they totally should. I mean, almost, they almost did. They got they L7 did. and yeah. they got Jesus and Mary chain and the Ramones and the, like they were, they were close. They should have just, yeah, yeah. Like you said, they should have just gone all in. Be like, they they should have just played pet cemetery by the Ramones again. That song <laughs> is unbeatable. I love that song. Uh, would have been funny, yeah, if like it closed out again, and like that, that was like it's like almost like a the boring identity with Moby's extreme ways. Where it's like, <laughs> well, in the, you know, in the in this in the pet franchise, uh, the theme song we're just gonna keep closing out with uh, the. Correct Ramones. me if I'm wrong. Doesn't the remake end with a like a dark, scary cover of the yeah. Ramones song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's it Star wow. Starcrawler. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I didn't like that I I just started cackling over. And I still, and I do this with the stand also is the ending with like the, when they put the photos over when they're like driving away. Um, and oh, like, yeah. like the video of like everyone who died and passed, like, oh. oh, hey, remember who passed like 90 minutes ago or, you know, through the last 90 minutes of your movie? Like, in case you forgot, it's just like, like we're like, why layer on like the, the melodrama? Like, it doesn't really mean you don't need that. Like, it, cause at that point, it's like, you've already had this like insane boisterous ending and then to go back and dial it back and be like, look who we've lost. And, <laughs> <laughs> it's so, it's weird. Like I don't, in I, loving memory. <laughs> yeah. Like I always, I always laugh when they have that, like, um, especially at the ending of movies when they show clips of scenes you literally just watched. Like, yeah. like remember this it's like well no i didn't have any time to have any sort of nostalgia because the fucking movie's still on like how the hell is you know it's just it's, it's such a weird motif that they would do all the time in the late 90s i think it works a little bit better in mcgarris's the stand just because you've been on that long journey but like yeah. i don't know it's still kind of sappy think, yeah like platoon had that type of ending but it kind of worked there because so many people die that you're like oh yeah yeah i need i probably i didn't remember that guy yeah yeah, and then they put the villains. But otherwise, no. Like Gus, like what? oh god, like they put the villains in there. Like oh, <laughs> Gus died. Gus. <laughs> it's like what? Uh, yeah, it's very weird. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else. Um, is there anything else that that that, that kind of stuck? That got stuck in the crawl. Nothing. Well, hey. I think, I think- we all really like this movie. I, I know. Think, so. well, that, that's why I think <laughs> yeah. the, the highlights there. Well, I think the next section is going to be great because uh, we're going to be talking about the highlights in a section we like to call You Have Not Forgotten the Face of Your Father. I do not aim in my head. He who aims at his head has forgotten the face of his father. I aim with my eye. Well, I'm just going to say it right now. I, I think the best thing in this movie we've talked about him the whole entire time clancy brown i mean if you want to talk about something being effective mr brown uh my hat's off to you yeah (laughs) gus 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 Gus. yeah i I mean that whole sequence uh, like i I mentioned before when he's chasing the kid going up the stairs you got the wolf chasing after him too 
The mother comes home, immediately buys into what's happening. They get in the car. It, it is just perfect, relentless horror filmmaking, I would say. But what else do you really love about this movie? Mary Lou ending. Yeah. This Absolutely. huge over-the-top, like, she looks like Mary Lou. We've got the whole fire thing going. If you're going to go for a grand finale, I feel like that actually from a visual standpoint at least is more exciting than than the previous movie yeah yeah it's it's uh inspired (laughs) and you can definitely (laughs) tell that like lambert's like absolutely flexing uh the muscle from her like music video history at this point yeah Um, same same with the opening i think it's a a really nice bookend Mm -hmm. like you said earlier yeah yeah Um, i uh i wouldn't rule out Mary Lambert getting the money or maybe she, I don't know if she has the interest, but I feel like if anyone wanted to throw Mary Lambert money to make the pet cemetery two that she didn't make like the Ellie Creed one, I feel like there's an appetite for that and it would do well. I agree. Maybe, but you know, honestly, I kind of don't know, like if we're going to spin off like this or, or do remakes, there's so much town history with the cemetery, not this single family you could spin off so many stories, like even some of those stories that were hinted at or, or even discussed in the book. Like, mm-hmm. let me live in Ludlow a little more, people. Like, do something with that. Ellie, I, you know, I think there was a window for, for Ellie's story, but now I'm ready to see somebody outside of the Creed family. Yeah, I the idea that around the time that the remake came out last year, um, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, like, uh, went the interview with Caff- with Dan Caffrey, co-host of the losers. Um, he actually asked like, oh, well, you know, you were talking about a prequel or would you see a sequel to this or something like that? And he said, well, yeah, prequel would be great because there's so much lore in King's original novel that you could mine. And I agree. I mean, like if you, could you imagine like a 1920s set, uh, like pet cemetery would be like terrifying. <laughs> Right. Uh, or yeah. even just get get into the Wendigo. Like the reason yes. only hinted at yeah, it. There's a totally. whole lot of Wendigo stuff. Give me that. Yeah. Yeah. And that totally. is something I did like about this one a lot is just that they expanded on the burial ground. I mean, visually. Right. And, you know, just a whole other story involving that. Like they show you more than I feel like that they do in the original and they make the scale and the scope of it bigger. Exactly. Um, and I think that that's awesome. I think it's great. And I'm so glad that they went that route for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's like we had we had two houses on a busy street in the first one. And now you feel a little bit more lived in in this town. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. I want like a like a Dawn of the Dead style, like Pet Cemetery 3, <laughs> where they just go it all out. Work. Yeah. Or like yeah. a Land of the Dead, I mean. Like just go all in. Because um, it is cool like how... Yeah, like I mean, some of the the implied history and getting into the town lore, it would be really eerie and creepy to have that stuff uh, go down. Um, hmm, I don't know. I I I don't know if it'll ever happen because, I mean, the the remake was a success, but not enough. Not enough. Probably. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that was kind of like the first moment where we got like um like a. Like a Pretty much like the first chink to like uh, um, the armor of Stephen King, re- re- the, the the renaissance that's happening. Like it was like, mm-hmm. oh, well, OK, um, swing and a miss there a little bit, um, even though it wasn't, though. I, that's the thing. It's so weird. That, that That's like the most perplexing thing that happens. It's like 
Actually, all of the Stephen King adaptations last year is the most perplexing thing. Like, they were all successes. Like, It Chapter 2 was a huge success. Like, it still was like, I mean, we talked about this, Brett, and like the blockbuster thing. Like, it made so much money. It's like one of the, it's still in the top five, I think, highest grossing horror movies of all time. But yet, it's like considered a flop because, like, I guess the reception itself wasn't like as resounding as the first it. And then it's like the same thing with the remake for Tibet Cemetery. Like, the critics actually pretty, it was pretty glowing. And then it actually made money. So I don't, I just don't get it. Like, I don't, I don't know. But it's the aftermath, I guess, is what counts. But anyway, Um, I also really like the direction here. I think uh, Lambert's direction is like when it's really like uh, crisp. Like it really captures like the f- the fall season. Um, yeah. Like beautifully. Am I crazy to say it looks better than the first one? I think. Or is that just my bias against the first one? I, I think it might be the bias. <laughs> like, I think aesthetically the first one is uh, is amazing. Like I think like people forget there are some amazing establishing shots of that first one. Like um, I always think about the I ending. Re-watch it. Like there's like ending where like they kind of do the the speech that Judd says again, and it's right towards the end before everything stops. And they kind of do all these amazing, uh, like shots over like uh, the you know the the nature that surrounds uh, the Creed House and you know the the truck going by and like the town itself. It's just really gorgeous uh, shots that come back here. I mean, she's an amazing filmmaker. I mean, like there's some really really awesome shots and portraits. Like when they're at the um, the I guess the quarry, like where they're like um, at the the river or whatever. Like there's some awesome shots there. I love the the. The, the uses of brown and reds that are in this movie. And then when it, it's a really nice juxtaposition to like the more um, Michael Mann <laughs> uh, color palette <laughs> tones that happen when they gets into the more music video territory. But yeah, I don't know. I, I thought that was great. Um, I love the vertigo shot when they're like crawling up, you know, the dam basically, mm-hmm. you know, to separating the cemetery from, whatever's beyond it yeah. and it just makes it seem like such like a big like presence that's alive just that one vertigo shot every time i'm like oh i love that so much yeah yeah and they, they, and I they lo- oh go for it go ahead no no, no, no you no. go ahead well i was just gonna say like the fact that it wasn't in the same location i mean because they shot out like around outside banger for the first one so it literally is like you know true main uh, setting the fact that they were actually still able to kind of mimic that uh, in Georgia is, is you know, th- th- there was applause there for that. You know, it, it didn't feel like a totally different town. Like um, when you watch like, you know, Rob Zombie's Halloween, which was filmed in Pasadena and the second one where it's like, hey, it's still Hall- it's still Haddonfield. And it's like you actually get into like a Midwestern vibe because you're in Georgia where they, or I think it was Georgia or Carolinas where they film. I don't know. Either way, it looks totally different. Like it doesn't look like the town anymore. And um, so I like that. I like that. that There's still, still feels like the, the, the history is there. Um, And the Micmac burial ground even looks the same. Um, You know, they get the rock that looks kind of like the rock it has, like the pet cemetery inside looks like the pet cemetery. I think they did a pretty good job with the set dressing. I love that Mary Lambert went on to direct a movie. I actually, last night I watched Halloween Town with my fiance because it's on Disney Plus and we have, you know, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. But Mary Lambert directed Halloween Town 2, Calabar's Revenge. And she also directed urban legends the third one that was straight to video after urban legends and urban Le- or urban legend and urban legends final cut she did she did the bloody mary one oh, which interesting. my manager of the movie theater i worked at in evanston illinois was an extra in and he talked about it a lot 
Uh, God. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I Not love... Not a great movie, admittedly, uh, Bloody Mary, if I Bummer. recall. I haven't seen it since the year it came out. I've only seen the first one. I've never, I've never actually. Oh, really? Final yeah. Cut is actually great. Really? Totally recommend it. Yes. Okay. Okay. A lot of like early aughts actors in that one. Um, with well, yeah, it's total John, scream knockoff, but it's, but it's, it justifies its existence. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I, well, I mean, Halloween Town Two is uh, apparently better than Halloween Town One. Um, my girlfriend's a huge <laughs> yeah, fan. Yeah, I can't wait. Gotten a huge, gotten a long, uh, gotten a little discussion with uh, Mary Lambert on Twitter, which is funny. Um, she was like freaking out. She's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe she responded!" And it was just, it was pretty funny. So she, we, we had to watch it that night. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway. you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And uh, Calabar, great. What, what a villain. You know what um, I noticed? This is gonna, this is gonna be for nobody. But uh, <laughs> in the credits for Halloween Town, the first one, Calabar is spelled with a C, and in the second one, in the title, it's with a K. And I just wanted to put that out into the universe. <laughs> I'm glad we had that. That it's like um, yeah. when they mess up Michael Audrey or Aubrey Myers in the the Halloween <laughs> trivia. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, pretty sure I'm the only one that uh, noticed that one when I was little. But um, do we have any other things that we want to gush about with this movie before we uh, offer our final thoughts? I do love Zowie. I'm mm. not gonna lie. I'm a big dog person, and I think Zowie yes. as an actor does a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Love that's a good a, dog. That's a good doggo right there. Yeah, <laughs> genuinely terrified of that dog when it goes evil. Um, yeah, it does great, and you know, just like I don't like the violence against the animals, I also love just the presence of so many animals at mm-hmm. the same time, yeah. and. Yeah, it's just a cute, a cute, fluffy puppy. Yeah, I, I recall growing up the taxidermy scene when it like does the quick pans over all the heads, like really unnerved me. Like it got under my skin. Um, I remember that just being like, "Wow, that's who the hell would ever want that in their room?" Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't really get that. Anyway, anything else? All right, it's time for our final sacrifice. Do you just sit there. Seize him, punish him, cut him down, I command you. I am the word and the giver of his laws. Disobedience to me is disobedience to him. Do it now or your punishment shall be a thousand times, a thousand deaths, each more horrible than the last. All right, we're going to offer our final thoughts on Pet Cemetery 2, and we do this on the grading scale of one to five dumb-a-chums, with five being the worst and one being the greatest. Rachel, kick it off you know i i really enjoy this one i think it's overall sense of humor and self-awareness and the way that it pays tribute to the original while also becoming its own very unique thing is just fantastic so i i'm gonna give it two delma chums oh nice 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 brett how about you um I am going to give it three Dumb Chums out of five. Is that right? Am I doing it right? Yeah. No, five is the worst. One. Oh, five is oh. the worst. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So um, one I'm going to go great. with two then. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Two. I, I really enjoyed it way more than I expected, especially coming in pretty cold on Pet Cemetery, the first one and the remake. And having read the book recently, um, I was surprised to find that, you know, the kind of what I assumed was a knockoff sequel that has very little affiliation with King uh, ended up being very enjoyable, very fun, and definitely in the King spirit. So, yeah, two, two dumb chums for awesome. me as well. Awesome. Megan, what about you? Jeez. Oh, um, 
I don't know. It's it's a two or a three because it's there's a lot of problems with it, mm-hmm. uh, especially the Anthony Edwards dream sequence, uh, <laughs> or maybe just Anthony Edwards in general. Yeah. So I can't I can't really say it's a great movie, but it's a movie I thoroughly enjoy. Um, obviously, for lots of reasons, at the top of the list being Clancy Brown. Um, but to me, this is also I like a really sassy, feisty female director and to me this is that because mary lambert had to do this movie she got shot down for for the vision she wanted to do so i feel like she was like fuck it i'm going full camp try and stop me and so we got this pure goofy movie that is so much fun to watch yeah i agree i i think that's where i'm leaning also i think i'm gonna go with the 2.5 um and I and I'm going to reference Mel Castle again. I I think she really hit the nail on the head um, back in 2018 in our, our initial discussion on this uh, when she said that she likened it to Evil Dead Two, um, and that you know you watch the first one, Evil Dead One's terrifying, even though there are some quote unquote campy moments, but they go full on in the camp in the second one, and there's not really much terror or horror. It's just kind of balls to the wall, um, zany, wild. Uh, action um and i think that's the same thing here the only difference is that with evil dead 2 you're able to follow someone like you know ash who kind of grounds the things the proceedings a little bit because you know everything he's gone through with the first one um there's a familiarity there so whatever happens is fine as long as he's around which is one of the reasons why i think you know the series works and, and yada 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 the only real recurring thing in Pet Cemetery 2 is the town, um, the, Mic-Mac, the Micmac burial grounds and, you know, the stories and the lore. Mm-hmm. And so there's a comfortability that comes from it. But so like, you know, I was thinking like, who am I really latching onto? I mean, like, I guess arguably it's Edward Furlong's movie in the sense of narrative. But like the only person really that interested in the entire film is Gus. Like he has a yeah. pretty great arc. Um, and for that, like, it makes it almost like the movie Maniac Cop 2 or Maniac Cop 3 in a way. Like, it's almost like it's like weird antihero that you just keep following. And it's not even an antihero, just like a, like a total villain. Um, right. But I kind of love it. And so for when I look at it that way, I appreciate it a lot more when I, and especially when I couple it with the fact that it's just Lambert going all in um, on the sensational. So, yeah, I mean, I think it turns out to be kind of like a wildly manic midnight movie in that respect. So, yeah, I think two, 2.5 for me. Um, but, yeah. This would be such a great, uh, maybe it's already played the music box of horrors, but, like, this is a perfect festival horror movie oh, I to know. play at, like, you know, 2 a.m. or something. Yes. It would be so fun. Because you need those movies. Like, I, I remember going to the music Absolutely. box of horrors, like, five years ago. And they started, they, you know, they put possession on it like two or three. And I, and like before that, we were all, it was like gung ho. Like all of us were just like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to get to the end. And the end is like noon the next day. And after right. possession, we were like, all right, I want to go home. Yeah, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to sit in those fucking seats yeah. for so long. And the, but, but even just like a movie like that, it's like a gut punch. Yeah. Like you don't want a gut punch. You want something that's going to get you like your blood going and like, you know, your heart racing a little bit. And that's this. Like, it's so much fun. The, yeah, it's perfect. Uh, anal- or analogous, I would say, is at the first music box I went to, which, God, must have been like, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. The 2 a.m. or like just after midnight movie was Texas Chainsaw 2. Like, that's oh, yeah. perfect. It's a perfect it's just one. perfect. And it's yeah. very similar to this. I mean, it's exactly it's, it's totally tongue in cheek. Like tone wise. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, folks, I hate to say it. 
but uh, it's time to leave Ludlow. Uh, I want to thank all of you for, for making it out here. Um, you know, I know it wasn't easy getting up here in this, uh, these burial grounds. Uh, the deadfall can be a little tricky. I mean, Brett, you almost, you almost broke your neck when you're walking over there, huh? that run branch, but, uh, look, I gotta be careful. We, we gotta go. Um, but before we go, um, let's do some plugs. So, uh, Megan, tell us what's coming up. Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> so much. Things. Yeah. <laughs> so much. Imagine. I don't even know where to begin. Um, you can listen to me weekly on the Bloody Disgusting podcast. I am forever busy on Bloody Disgusting. I have three articles coming out in the October issue of Fangoria. I'm everywhere. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, th- it's... Yeah. Keep up with it on Twitter at Haunted Meg. Definitely will. And uh, you probably wouldn't have. How guesstimate uh, how many reviews do you think you have in October? You got coming oh my up. god! I yeah, I just getting teary thinking about it. Um, at <laughs> yeah, the least stream stuff forty coming in today. Yep, yep, forty. Yeah. Oh my god! I would. I'm... I mean, there's like, yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot between Fantastic Fest, which granted isn't much. There's a couple of Salem Horror Fest. There's definitely Nightstream. and that doesn't even cover the nonstop barrage of October releases that keep. They just keep coming. adding. Like, like, ah, yeah. here's the witches. Have fun. Um, yeah. God. Uh, it's like, come play. I forgot that was coming out, but I got an email this morning. It was like, all right, that screener's coming. Holy crap. I know. That's and why then, I actually just watched that before I got on this. Yeah. Uh, well, and then also, um, they, uh, God, like, they just, they just did, like, the Beyond Fest, too, which was, um, oh, I had man. to, like, kind of find someone in L.A., recently for that but uh lots of i mean the the horror movies are just non-stop it's it's weird it's like horror one this year for sure um because all of them are able to get out on vod and digital but it's also yeah the to... virtual screenings are great it's awesome it it's great but at the same time it's <laughs> bad yeah you know it's not, also, not even yeah. for my yes. workload just yes. for like how many titles are going to be remembered a year from now i 100 agree i already forgot i saw 20 movies at fantasia fest yeah. and i could tell you the names of like three of them yeah exactly same yeah same uh well brett what do you have on your docket um listen to the new flesh podcast we're out every monday uh we are a horror movie podcast about all things tangentially related to horror and we used to be doing we, we used to do you know current theatrical releases um now we're doing deep dives of franchises where we did psycho we did texas chainsaw um we did god we did so many i can't even remember but right now we're doing halloween for the second time because uh it's the fifth year anniversary of the show so we're doing an even deeper dive into halloween because we never gave each movie in its own episode <laughs> so we're doing that and i also was on an episode of hoff's public domain horror fest last night which was a blast uh hoff's public domain horror fest is a weekly um comedy horror screening i would describe it as it's huh. like a movie kind of mst3k style where he interrupts it and hasn't really interrupted but he like edits himself into it in funny ways and kind of just like sven style hosts it so i was a guest on that last night as they watched uh, little shop of horrors oh, on youtube shop. yeah oh. it's really it's a really fun show and the idea is you know it's public domain stuff so that everyone can watch along via this just youtube produced show and it's really uh really fun time so check that out as well sounds great sounds great rachel what do you got uh, going for spooky season? Yeah, so I'll have some Salem reviews still coming out um, over on Room Morgue and Film Cred. And then Nightstream stuff will start here pretty soon. I'll be doing that for Room Morgue. 
um, as well as my normal stuff for Nightmare on Film Street. Uh, this next month, or this month, it's October. Uh, <laughs> this month is uh, the Sound of Screams month on Nightmare on Film Street, which has to do a lot with music and scores and sound effects. And that's kind of my area of interest. So I'll have a lot of stuff coming out for that, which I'm really excited about. And you can find an article related to that in the next issue of uh, We Are Horror, which comes out here in a couple weeks. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it's uh, I, I've always talked to uh, <laughs> Brad Misko about this, uh, like one on one about um, he always says like October is just such a fucking nightmare every year. And I'm finally starting to get that uh with us just doing horror nonstop now. Um, yeah. And it's just, oh my God, it's relentless. And it's fun because you're like, oh, well, you know, I love doing all this stuff and I love horror and I love being able to watch the movies. But yeah, I mean, Megan, you're, you're right. Like I, I, I honestly, like it's hard to enjoy a lot of this stuff like because it's, it's so relentless. And I do wonder how much am I going to really remember um, uh, after this year because it's like... I will say it's the, the first the first two screeners I got from Nightstream that I watched today were eons better than anything I've seen at other fests this year. There's wow. a lot of good stuff that didn't make the other fests. Uh, and I had to it's skip it. Really just, exciting. There's just so much going on that I, I, I just couldn't do Nightstream this year. They'll all be on Shutter in six months. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's like what Donna, I think, in Twin Peaks says. She's like, it's like I'm having the most beautiful dream and the like most horrible nightmare at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a perfect way to, to close it out because I mean I don't even know where to begin to promote for the Losers Club stuff. I mean we got our first dance macabre uh, episode next week, which is going to have us uh, going through all of the uh, the inspired works that uh, King um, talked about in his dance macabre book. So the first one is going to be Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, uh, which we tied to uh, you know because. Flanagan's uh, Hunting of Blind Manor is next week. So I figured people are going to be in on Hill House again because we're going to be revisiting it. So uh, should be a great discussion. Uh, Mel Castle actually teaches classes on Hill House. So she'll be leading that one. Very exciting. Um, then we have our It reunion panel for Salem Horror Fest, um, which we did two sessions on and just got really emotional, got really great, um, really fun, excited for that and excited to see the cut for it finally on that. We just finished it last night. Um, and then we have, uh, we're talking to other authors. We're talking about other authors. We're going to be doing a bunch of creep show stuff with the, that's tied to the Halloween special, hoping that, uh, we should be getting a one-on-one with Greg Nicotero, which I'm hoping, cause I just want to go all in on King with him. Um, look, the calendar's everywhere. You could, we've, we've put it on socials. We put it on Patreon. You could find it. Um, and once again, if you haven't, Please, 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 please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us some bright red Pennywise clown noses. We could, we could, we could use it. Um, we deserve it because we are your favorite, your devoted, and your only Losers Club. Until then, we'll be seeing you over long days and pleasant nights. I got some hot friends. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, 
Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>